Amen. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm really tempted to just jump into big, long current events thing. Um, I'll summarize by just saying, like, pay attention to the news and the world and Israel and just, my goodness, the stuff that's going on all around us. It's positively biblical, to say the least. Um, we were in Acts chapter 17, and we had to come to Moses, and uh, we saw the fulfillment as as uh, Stephen, and I, and I often mistakenly say Philip when I'm talking about Stephen, so you know, bear with me, please. Um, so uh, here, Stephen addressing the Sanhedrin accusations have been made about, well, it's kind of broad, but two things in particular. Um, they've accused Stephen falsely of saying that um, the temple would be destroyed. He would destroy the temple or God would destroy the temple, but the temple would be destroyed. And um, that the observation of the Jews uh, would be changed or demolished. There, it's sort of a mixed up accusation, but uh, that, uh, you know, supposedly Stephen is teaching against the teachings of Moses. And so as Stephen goes through this sermon with them, he dwells a lot on the two points of how significant are the teachings of Moses in comparison to Jesus Christ and Jesus having fulfilled the law and relieved them of the necessity to fulfill the law in order to have a relationship with Christ. Um, and, uh, you know, Christ had left them with two basic commandments, which helps us to fulfill the whole law, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then subsequently, as a result, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, you know, the, the overarching uh, look at the fact of, and I don't mean to say it this way, but the temple's really not significant. Okay, it brings the people together, it allows them to worship, draws their attention to the Lord, but the Lord is everywhere. And, and he's significantly making these points over and over again. Like before the temple, Moses was in communion with God. Moses was in connection with God. You know, all of these different things, you know, that, that Moses' teachings didn't fulfill the relationship that these people were to have with the Lord. So he's dismantling uh, their the core of their accusations. He's not even really addressing the fact that I never said that. That's not, you know, he's, he's more addressing like how significant is it that we're even observing these things as a people talking to them a lot about the fact that when God sends his messenger or particularly his deliverer, they always reject the messenger the first time. Uh, you know, it's only in the second occasion he's given the example of Joseph and how they recognize him later. And now here's uh, Moses as this example, uh, you know, kills the Egyptian oppressor. Uh, they reject Moses. So, again, rejecting their deliverer, rejecting God, rejecting their source of salvation. Um, uh, we had read uh, 17 down through actually verse 34, but... Um, you know, subsequently 17 talking about, um, you know, the, the struggle that they were under, uh, Moses particulars of how he saw the people, and, you know, 40, after 40 years, he went to them, tried to deliver them, 
uh, killed the Egyptian, was rejected by them, fled into uh, the wilderness of Midian, uh, where he had two sons. Um, we've read this, but I'll review verse 30. When 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. No temple, no tabernacle, right? In the wilderness, burning bush, totally different setting, do totally different uh, appearance of the Lord. Moses has this very, very deep spiritual experience with God. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses trembled and dared not look, as, as you can only imagine, if you were experiencing this in reality, it would shock you to the core. Verse 33, then the Lord said to Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And there's all kinds of crazy opinions about what's going on with removing the shoes. And uh, it's respect. You know, it's, it's the idea of your shoes are walking all over this filthy world. And uh, you're now in the presence of the Lord, and uh, your walk is defiled. Um, I, I like to jump forward to Jesus washing the apostles' feet. And, uh, you know, some churches still, Jesus gives that command, do this. Some churches still uh, do that. Um, you know, if, if you go to a church that has a, a foot washing ceremony, um, that occasion is when all the feet in the church are the cleanest, not from the washing. Everybody does that before they come, right? Nobody wants to just haul off your filthy work boot and say, you know, have at it uh, sort of thing. Uh, this The spiritual summary is, right, Jesus specifically, Peter says, uh, oh, well, you know, don't wash my feet. Uh, I'm unworthy sort of attitude, takes a humble approach. Uh, Jesus says, you know, I have to wash your feet or, or basically we have nothing to do with one another. Uh, then Peter goes super spiritual and says, well, then, you know, I'll take a full bath. And, and Jesus uh, corrects him and says, I've already cleansed you. And I know I'm paraphrasing and summarizing, but, uh, you know, then the washing of the feet. Point being, right, Christ is cleansed. If you've said, I want to be a child of God, you've you know, ask to be born again and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Cause me to experience being a child of God. Then you're already cleansed. But walking in this filthy world will continuously pollute you day to day. So you need Christ to purify your walk, purify, you know, as it were, your spiritual feet to correct you continuously. So, you know, not so much that we need to get basins and wash one another's feet, but that we're to encourage one another and cleanse one another with the word and strengthen one another and direct. You know, if we want to have a foot, foot washing ceremony, I, I guess, like I said, that's okay. But I'm confident everyone will wash their feet thoroughly before they come here. You know, in that time, right, open-toed sandals, dusty streets where livestock was, you know, moving around, you're going to have some seriously dirty feet. Uh, there's maybe some cow poop involved in that whole thing um, where you're washing people's feet. This is why they had the lowest servant do it and why Peter was making such a protest about it. We are going to, there's an encouragement. We are going to experience 
the filthiness of this world. As much as Christ has redeemed us, we're sinners. And again, it's not a permission slip to just go out and sin, but you know, if you if you stumble, you fall, if you step in things you should not spiritually, then we should cleanse one another. Encourage one another with the word of God, right? I already washed you with the water of the word. Husbands, wash your wives in the water of the word. Now, these encouragements uh, come to us, and we need to follow the spiritual example that's laid out for us. So Moses, take your shoes off. Uh, you're on holy ground here. Um, your filthiness shouldn't enter into this uh, place, is you know, kind of what the, the Lord is saying. Uh, I have... I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So again, Stephen is uh, delivering this sermon to the religious leaders who have despised him. This Moses, verse 35, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So the summary understanding that um, they rejected their deliverer the first occasion, Stephen's uh, painting the parallel between Jesus and all of the ministers that God has sent to the nations, they reject them, and then it's on the second occasion that they embrace their messengers and their ministers and their uh, deliverers. So, you know, he's trying to establish with them: this is nothing new. What you've done with Jesus is nothing new. This, this is how our nation always acts. So in verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren whom you shall hear. He's driving the point to them that Jesus is the fulfillment of that messenger, but we're immediately seeing Jesus say things like, uh, you know, I've come to you in the name of my Father, and you've rejected me. There is one coming who will come in his own name, and him you will receive a clear indication of Antichrist. Um, the spirit of Antichrist, um, you know, the messengers from the devil, those who preach a message that is fleshly, worldly, people gladly hear those. You know, health, wealth, prosperity, yeah, they grab a hold of false teachings. Going to embrace the Antichrist, one like Moses, but he's going to come in his own name. So there's a two-part fulfillment to this in that Jesus came like Moses, being rejected like Moses. And you know later, some of them, many of them, accepted him. There's going to come one also like Moses, just a man. Jesus was God in the flesh. The Antichrist is going to come much like Moses in that He's filled with his flaws and his deceptions and, uh, you know, ends up leading the people astray. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. 
the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected in their hearts. They turned back to Egypt. A remarkable account of those who were rejected of Moses. And we want to be careful because we have the same human tendencies and we have the same propensity towards failure. Um, the nation of Israel sees the miraculous work of God and it doesn't convert their heart, right? They embrace the miraculous work, you know, delivered by the miracles, signs and wonders in Egypt, Red Sea parts, rock gives water, manna falls from the sky. They're enthralled when it comes to, okay, now trust God in faith and cross the Jordan River and conquer the people in Canaan. They doubt they're filled with fear. They speak against God. You know, here referencing those who turned back to Egypt. Um, it's it's a human condition, right? It's not an Israeli condition strictly. This isn't something that only the Hebrews do. Um, we have a head full of knowledge sometime, and the amount of faith that's actually in our heart is quite small as to how much we'll follow and obey and trust the Lord. Uh, very often, the things of the world that we can see are so contrary to what the Lord is asking us to do and promising us that we become convinced that what we can see is more real, more true than what the Lord has communicated. And this is why the scripture tells us that the just will walk by faith, not by sight. The things that you can see are very often deceptive. You know, you look at a situation and it looks like it's going to be terrible. And God's telling you, I want you to take a step of faith and move forward into this opportunity. And we get all freaked out about how, no, it's going to destroy us. It's going to ruin us. The potential for disaster. So we don't move forward in faith or vice versa, right? Um, you know, we, we think something's going to be terrible and, and uh, God's promise, promising us good. We think something's going to be good and God's telling us to avoid it. Don't step forward. Don't embrace and worry and work and this is going to be wonderful. It's the best thing. I have to move forward. And then we suffer the consequences uh, because there's, so, you know, obviously so much we can't see. All we see is what's right in our, you know, in front of us, right in our present state of existence. So uh, learning to walk by faith, learning to trust the Lord. Um, it's a process over time that the Lord is patient and, and will bring us through. This is that Moses who said to your brethren, uh, him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness. The angel spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles, um, New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, the, the, the tablets, the law, the uh, Ten Commandments, how to build the temple, which he talks about, whom our father would not obey, but rejected in their hearts. They turned back to Egypt, saying, Aaron, make us gods and go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, rejoiced in the work of their hands. This is a particular stab on Stephen's part, right? Because the temple is what they're talking about. 
the work of their hands. You know, it's become an idol. He can't say that outright. They'll flip their lid instantly. He's trying to put a smooth angle on this so that they see, you know, the people in our past. Moses is away. They immediately turn to idolatry. And, and there's something about that that's quite interesting because uh, the Lord told them to go amongst the Egyptians before they departed out of Egypt and to ask of them for valuables. And uh, the sense of it is they had been enslaved and hadn't been paid their wages for the time they worked. And so they went amongst the Egyptians as the, the plagues had occurred and said, you know, we're leaving town and we'd really like to be paid for. And, and they just heaped uh, wealth upon them saying, basically, please get out of town. You know, our firstborn are dead. We've experienced all these plagues. We want you to go away. Um, <clears throat> that is referred to as the gleaning of the Egyptians. And the very first thing that they do with it is make a golden cow. They take God's provision and wealth that he has uh, poured out upon them and they worship it. It doesn't matter if you've shaped it into a golden cow. If it's God's provision and his wealth and all that he's you know, blessing that he's bestowed upon you. And if you become focused upon that, rather than the one who delivered it, right, then it's idolatry. You're just one step away from the God who delivered you. Now, for us, that can, that can be really dangerous on a lot of levels. You know, worship the job, the money. You know, get thinking like, this job has provided for me all these years. No, God has provided for us all these years. You know, sometimes he'll reach in and take away uh, the thing that he's blessed us with. And he'll continue to sustain us and care for us to teach us, no, I'm the one that's blessing you. you know, it, isn't, it isn't that job. It's not that relationship. It's not this education. You know, maybe God wants you to have all those things. But he certainly isn't willing to give us those things if it's going to destroy our relationship with him. And that's where these guys are at. They've completely abolished their relationship with the Lord. They're murderers, They're presently plotting to, you know, kill this man who's speaking uh, to them. So, um, in this, you know, idea, they they've uh, made this golden calf, rejoiced in the work of the hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven, and that's the demonic. Okay, it isn't, you know, uh, some sense of holiness. Give them up to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Um, so before I move into the remainder of verse 42, um, you might want to put a note in your Bible right there regarding Romans chapter 1 and how God is saying that he will give men over uh, to their false sense of worship in, in, the la in the end times and the last days. Uh, and God is going to pour his wrath out upon them. We're living in a culture uh, right now that it is doing this wholesale that you know god is you, you hear things about you know transgenderism and all these different you know strange drugs and you know the stuff that's going on and you kind of throw up your hands like oh man the world is just falling apart it is you know god is letting it go he, he's he's letting this deterioration happen and and in it it will be a punishment within itself 
but then his wrath comes also. You're going to experience that firsthand uh, punishment of God. And specifically, so the hosts of heaven, he's given them over. As the prophets have said, uh, verse 42, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Remphan. Imagine uh, which, uh, excuse me, Im images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So uh, he's here quoting Amos chapter 5, verse 27, and, and there uh, Amos specifically said um, that God would carry them away beyond Damascus because Amos was a prophet to the ten northern tribes of Israel, and they were carried away beyond Damascus. Stephen is modifying the reference, right, because he's in Jerusalem speaking particularly to the two southern tribes. He's speaking to Judah at this moment, and they were carried away to Babylon, right? So he's, you know, maybe prophesying within himself, but he's actually got the intellect to shift gears and make the prophecy more applicable to the audience that he's speaking to. He's modifying it uh, for the punchline, as we might say. Molech, Remphan, these gods, they worship incredibly murderous, uh, desired that these false gods, the, the demons that inspired this worship, demanded blood sacrifice, human sacrifice to them. Molech, in particular, was a god of sexual perversion and uh, sexual activity, and a lot of unwanted pregnancies were a result of these massive worship sessions of Molech that went on. And uh, so part of the worship was that uh, they, when a woman who worshipped Molech went into labor, they would bring her, and as the child was delivered, uh, this giant iron statue of Molech, they would fill his huge belly full of uh, wood and light it ablaze until the, the statue uh, burned red, incandescent, outstretched hands before this idol. They would take that newborn infant and throw it into the searing hot hands and just incinerate uh, the child. There, this rhythmic pounding of drums was part of their uh, worship that they developed to drown out uh, the screams of the woman giving birth and the child who was dying. A hideous thing. This, this God is so gracious, so kind, so loving, so tender, so caring, and instead they've rejected all of that and gone out of this, you know, after this hideous metal monstrosity that is, you know, torture and murder of children. It's, it's insane uh, what they had done. So he, he, you know, he's saying to them, this was us, guys. You know, you may be here now all proud of your, you know, your Sanhedrin and all that you've become, Sadducees and the Pharisees and, you know, the scholars, uh, the scribes. Uh, but we have a history that is hideous, is what he's saying. You know, we haven't been, you know, a, a, a you know, we haven't been like our God kind, generous, forgiving, gracious, you know, wonderful provider. We haven't been like our God. We've been like the gods we worship, 
which are idols. You know, the gold, the silver of the temple. You know, these gods of power and wealth. They're misplaced worship, right? They're not actually worshiping God. They're worshiping the fact that the temple is completely overlaid with gold. All, you know, the, the colonnade and the, the pavement all around, highly polished white marble. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous what the human mind does, convinces itself that it's worshiping God when in fact it's actually engaged in a form of idolatry. So again, he's talking about their history when he refers to Babylon there. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. So if we're going to focus on the temple and the tabernacle, he's saying they had that. The, you know, our fathers had that when they were failing as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Moses was given the vision as to how the tabernacle was to be uh, uh, assembled in you know, very perfect order, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with jo Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles. So through the wandering, through the journey, all the way into the promised land whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So he's just bringing the um, attention to the fact that, yes, we've, we've had the tabernacle, we've had the temple, but all along the way, we were rejected of God and his messengers, and we followed after idols, and we were corrupt. So, you know, you're upset with me because these men are accusing me of saying I'm going to destroy the temple, but the temple never purified us in any way. He's drawing them. He's narrowing it down to Jesus is our Savior. That's where he wants to get them to in this uh, discussion. So, uh, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. So you can't confine God. And people do this to this day. You know, Worship the church building, not God. And what do I mean by that? You know, It's a little different today, but people will, um, <clears throat> like, uh, well, in a, in a childish way, maybe this will set the example. I've heard people say like no running in the house of God you know scold the kids like, like this is the house of God and, and I've taught and pointed out you know it would actually be better to say no running you're the house of God you know if you want to stop that right because you might run into the house of God who's very elderly and knock her down right <clears throat> we're the house of God and we enjoy that energy and we've built them a nice playground outside and they should go check that out in here, you know, we got several people that are, you know, my mom's 84 years old, uh, cruising around here uh, with her little buggy, man. You know, somebody run into that, they get hurt. You know, you could hurt the house of God. Uh, we are the house of God. And that's what Stephen is saying is, you know, you're all focused on the temple as though that is the dwelling place. Why? Because they would leave and, and go out and hire prostitutes and get drunk and worship idols and live in sin, and then come right back to the temple. Like, this is the house of God. Do we do that? Let's make sure we don't do that, right? God is as much in the bar downtown. We have a bar downtown? Yeah, we still have a bar downtown. 
uh, you know, he's as much there as he is here. Not, not implying like go hang out at the bar, worship there, uh, to say he can see everything we're doing. He knows who we are. It's not like, oh, well, here I am at the house of God. I better stop, you know, cussing and swearing and doing the terrible things that I do every single day. Because God's everywhere you go. Stephen is bringing their attention to that. Verse 49, heaven is my throne. So this, you know, idea of not, you can't dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? I am uh, very mindful of that statement, uh, his hand making all things. You know, the heavens is thrown, the earth is his footstool. I've seen some pretty cool hassocks over the years, footstools, but. Uh, I mean, if if the earth is your footstool, that's pretty ornate. That that's just your footstool. That's impressive. Um, Isaiah chapter forty verse twelve says, "Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand?" Speaking of God, uh, measured heaven with the span of his hands. That's literally all of the heavens, meaning the universe. And I'm going to make the universe about uh, that big. This is the magnificence, and who knows if this is a literal thing. I think that maybe to some degree it is, but he's probably bigger than that. You know, this is just to give the sense of how, I don't mean to say meaningless, uh, I'll say how small we are when you consider how large uh, the universe is. You know, he's calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Uh, you know, the uh, nations of the earth, the psalmist said, are as but the dust of the scales. Okay, so the people that would be the nations of the entire earth uh, in the day, what the Lord is literally saying through the psalmist is that the, uh, the honest merchants, when you went to do business, uh, they would pick the edge of their scale up and they would blow off the dust of both of the scales and then they would put their weight on one side and then your product so you got a perfect balance so when you paid them for an ounce or whatever <clears throat> and the idea of blowing off the scales was to assure the buyer i'm extremely honest i don't even want you buying the dust i'm going to make sure there's nothing on the scale that would tip these scales in my favor God, God is saying literally the nations of the earth are as the dust of the scales which the merchants blow off. You know, you watch the news and think, oh my Lord, as I said, you know, things have come unwound. At some point, God is just going to blow the scales off and equal the balance literally in his judgment as he carries out righteousness. Just to put this in context, because my mind does these sorts of things. On planet Earth, we are 92.6 million miles from the sun. Okay. Pretty massive distance, you consider that. Imagine the distance as the thickness of a piece of paper. So if, if we did this scale, many of you have heard me use this illustration many times. So 
if we said this thickness is 92.6 million miles. Sun is on this side. Earth is on this side. From the Earth to the Sun, 92.6 million miles. With that in mind, the distance to the nearest star is a stack of paper 71 feet high. So you'd have to put 92.6 million miles, 92.6 million miles, 92.6 million miles, 71 feet. Just to put this in context, the kitchen door down here to the front of the building is 100 feet. So, you know, somewhere at that door, 72 feet of paper. Not each piece of paper representing 92.6 uh, million miles. So uh, that's, uh, you know, to say the distance there, nearest star, the size of our galaxy is represented by a stack of paper 310 miles high. Our galaxy, you know, where we're on the Sagittarius arm. When you look out at night when the sky is crystal clear and you see the Milky Way and we go, oh, that's our galaxy. That's the Sagittarius arm. Of our galaxy okay uh, that's one of the spiral arms for the entirety of our galaxy so the distance across 310 miles 92 92 so that's my mother my mother-in-law lives in Keene New Hampshire that's 310 miles away you know five and a half hours of driving from here to her house just driving by a line of paper 92.6 million miles over and over and over again for five and a half hours to New Hampshire. It's remarkable uh, to consider. With every single piece of paper in the stack representing 93 million miles, that's just our galaxy. It's one amongst millions, as we say. Uh, so if you're thinking that you understand that, how about the known universe? So that's a galaxy, right? And there's millions of galaxies within the universe. That's a stack of paper that's 31 million miles high. 92.6 million miles over and over and over. And God said, I think I'll make it about that big, the span of his hand. So, you know, when you hear the arrogance of people who, who are acting, you know, when I meet God, I got a thing or two, I'm going to say that. Guy. Yeah, really? Well, we'll see if you've got anything to say. <clears throat> If he'll allow you to say anything, I, I suspect you're not going to want to say anything. You know, th those mockers will probably be just face down sobbing at that point because you, you're going to realize there's no arguing. There's not, you, you know, now is the moment of worship, right? And it's not even my obedience makes me acceptable to God and therefore I am saved. It's just please be merciful. Cover me with the blood of your son who died on my behalf, please. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. That's what we're looking for. That's what salvation is. It's not works in any way. So <clears throat> the heavens, his throne, the earth, his footstool, his hand, has, has his hand not made these things. And then Stephen shifts in verse 51 and says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Guys, I went through the Old Testament, and there are almost 20 occasions where the Lord says through the prophets to the nation of Israel, you are stiff-necked, hard of heart. 
He says it together. He says it separately. He call, he'll call them hard of heart, uncircumcised of heart, stiff-necked. This is not new. What Stephen is doing is not a message. Like they're just shocked and aghast. They can't believe. The Lord has said this to this nation repeatedly throughout their history. He, he has corrected and rebuked them through the prophets almost 20 times is what I was able to hear. He's probably using Deuteronomy at this point and modifying that uh, to say stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. He's sort of combining some things there. You always resist the Holy Spirit as the fathers did, so do you. Now, I tend to follow the rabbit chills, but I want to touch on this point, okay? Uh, five points of Calvinism. It's invading Christianity. We're hearing about all of these, you know, new reform, reform churches teaching Calvinism, okay? And then, you know, the opposite side of the coin is Armenians. And and I know I'm way oversimplifying it, but I'll, I'll just state it this way. You know, the tulip, the five points of Calvinism say, right, uh, once saved, always saved, eternal security, uh, only of the elect are saved. Okay. Uh, the Armenians on the other end of the spectrum are saying you want to be really careful. It's all about choice. Um, you know, God's sovereignty, they imply, doesn't really weigh in here. You could, you could be Christian one moment and unsaved the next moment. You know, just smash your thumb with a hammer and start cursing and swearing and you're going straight to hell is, you know, the, the whole attitude. So you get these polar opposites uh, and really the truth is sort of in the middle. And this is another one of those proof text because the Calvinists want to say that if you're incredibly evil, you are destined to be incredibly evil and you have no opportunity to repent. You're not one of the elect. Okay. That's their implication. And I, again, I am sorry for the gross generalizations, but right here, right? So if, if an incredibly evil person, these people who are about to stone Stephen, if they were elect chosen by God to be that they could never change. They have no opportunity. God created them this way and just set them on steel rails to be destroyed. If that's in fact the case, then they're not resisting the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit created them. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to betray Stephen and kill him. They're supposed to resist God according to the strictest thought on Calvinism and the, and the five points of Calvinism. So, so here you know, you always resist the Holy Spirit. According to Calvinism, no, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. This is what this is how God created them. Uh, do you see the absurdity? Do you understand what I'm trying to relay? We all have choice. You want to be one of the elect? Choose to be one of the elect. Guess what will happen? You'll be one of the elect. It's an amazing thing. You know, uh, it was Spurgeon that said, uh, you know, he was just imagining and he said that, over the gateway uh, to heaven, and again, I'm just paraphrasing him, it is written the words, whosoever. And he said, as soon as you step over that threshold and look back, that same archway says, chosen before the foundations of the earth. You want to you wanna be, a Christian? be a Christian? Well, I don't know if I am. I'm really confused. I'm really upset. Well, let me straighten it out for you. Choose Jesus, and you're saved. It's that simple. You don't, you don't have to be labored over it. So, stiff neck, uncircumcised of heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. So he's, he's painting this picture of this is our nature. This is our course. This is what we've always done, guys. This is, this is our routine. 
which the prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> the nation of Israel persecuted and killed every prophet that came to them. So of course you're going to kill Jesus, and of course you're about to kill me, Stephen is saying. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you know, excuse me, I, my dyslexia is kicking my butt tonight, one, uh, one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Um, that, that concept, right? If I could just see the miraculous, if I could just handle the supernatural, these people did and rejected their messengers and killed them. Uh, you know, seeing and experiencing the supernatural does not make a convert. So in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And there's many ways to describe that, but it's the idea. Uh, it isn't, you know, it's the idea of their wickedness stabbed them. It's not even that Stephen was like so cutting. It's the idea of um, conviction, you know. I think we've probably all experienced that where we've resisted God, resisted God, and we come to that moment where we know God is speaking directly to us and we're just broken by the fact. So they're, they're just stabbed through and a big part of it is jealousy. And so they, they uh, hear these things, they're cut to the heart, they gnashed at him with their teeth, which is such a strange picture to imagine. And he began being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And people ask, like, how do they know that's what he saw? Well, if you read verse 56, and he said, look, I see heaven, the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's telling you what he saw. You don't believe it, that's your problem. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. What, what, a, what a childish picture. To, to look at this just rage and incitement and you know the the fervent hatred and gnashing of their teeth and jamming their fingers and it's really playground you know childish rage uh, that we're, we're seeing don't so don't be surprised when you see it as you're trying to share and you see people losing their mind. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And um, the stoning went, uh, it took place a few different ways, but uh, there's a rock every, you know, three feet in Israel. It's just really stony, really, really rocky place. And so the method of stoning, um, you know, in this type of setting was to just grab up hand-sized stones, you know, bigger than a golf ball, and aim for the head and uh, hit and stun the person so that they can't run anymore. So the, the first throws are, are just trying to stop the retreat. So peg them in the head. They dazed, usually go down to at least their knees, their hands, larger rocks 
you know, follow with stuff that's even up to like melon size that you can grab and heave and <clears throat> bludgeon and pelt till they go to the ground. And then um, usually they might continue to pelt, but usually as soon as the pelting started, uh, a couple, three big guys would head for the biggest rock that they could lay eyes on in the immediate vicinity. And, and, and big enough to where it would take all three of them to get it up. And as soon as they got the person on the ground, they would come over to their head or their chest and do a three count and heave the thing up in the air and just cave in uh, the person's head or chest, kill them uh, and be done with it. So when you're reading about Paul being stoned to death later in the book of Acts and they dragged his body out and threw him in the trash heap, that's most likely what he went through. It wasn't just that they pelted him with rocks and, you know, one hit him in the head and knocked him out and he fell down and later he woke up. This this is, uh, you can't even imagine the level of injury that is taking place in, in an event such as this, which also plays into what we're reading next because there's a lot of blood splatter in, in an assault such as this. So they would remove their outer garments uh, in order to avoid the splash. It's horrendous. This is as vicious and as murderous a thing as you can possibly imagine. So they cast him out of the city. They stoned him. Witnesses laid down their clothes. That's the outer garment they would take off at a young man named Saul, at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Saul of Tarsus we're going to read about. Um, we talked about Gamaliel earlier, right? And he was a student of Gamaliel. He makes mention of it. Scripture makes mention of it. History makes mention of it. Gamaliel, in his writings, makes mention of Saul of Tarsus. So uh, lay his uh, clo their clothes down, their outer garments at the feet of Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin and when he had said this he fell asleep he literally died the early church was so um maybe even more accurate than us about resurrection they, they held to resurrection so tightly as the center of their belief that when someone died they 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 often didn't have much sorrow about it because they were you know they would quickly go through the process of the grieving and then quickly get to there's a resurrection at the end of this they had seen jesus resurrected they'd seen it with their own eyes many of them and so um it was something that was physical tangible it wasn't just spiritual and a belief system so when you know we hear this a few times and i think i've got one reference in the next chapter where they they trusted in the resurrection so highly that they refer to it as falling asleep um this call to the lord receive my spirit very similar to jesus father into your hands i commend my spirit um uh, crying out lord do not charge them with this sin jesus uh interestingly we, we often in the depiction of the crucifixion miss the fact that the way it's written, uh, and it's not expounded upon often, 
is Jesus was, was saying throughout his crucifixion, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, how many times? We don't know. But the way it's written, the Greek language indicates that throughout his crucifixion, you know, maybe as each insult came, you know, the scourging and the crucifixion and the nails and Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And, and Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, Father, forgive them. So that that spirit of forgiveness is just pour as much as Jesus blood is pouring out the spirit of forgiveness is pouring out of him Stephen probably witness to uh, Jesus death definitely a follower and uh, you know a follower of the teachings uh, emulating that same thing right to his death so dramatic uh, a an experience as the church has had up to uh, this point uh, really shaking them all to the core, verse 1 of chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. So gathers the clothes at his feet and states that he's consenting to his death. Probable, probable that uh, Saul is a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court uh, of the day usually compiled of 70 there are various numbers that are speculated um nicodemus john chapter 3 comes to jesus in the middle of the night and they have that whole conversation and you must be born again and the discussion of the holy spirit and second birth but nicodemus jesus says are you the the it's definite article are you the ruler of the jews and you don't understand these things you don't know these things you're the spiritual, the spiritual leader of the Jews. The indication is from that statement, from other references in the scripture and Jewish history and Josephus, that Nicodemus was the ruler of the Sanhedrin. So um, the um, authority to perform an execution of this, uh, like a search warrant or something, it had to be approved by a member of the court so so when we're reading here that saul consented to his death it's the idea of with the political and religious authority and power that he had he was giving consent to the people so this sort of fell under his purview and authority stephen's death you know at this time um he's probably if if this is the way this went He's going to have to answer to the council, but he's going to have many witnesses from the Sanhedrin uh, that are going to support him in this. Uh, so um, it falls to him. It's a it's very powerful position that he's just taken in this one. They may even have to. He may have actually had to answer to Rome for this, uh, for the fact that this uh, took place. So at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I like the fact that the apostles stick. You know, the, the, the fear, the persecution causes the fleeing. We're going to see that this continues and expands dramatically. It becomes uh, what is referred to as the diaspora. And you can hear the spore, the scattering of the spore or the drifting of the spore or the seed 
It's the, it's the distribution of the church. The persecution becomes the thing that causes church growth as they're scattered uh, all through uh, you know, Asia Minor and back all the way as far as Europe and then down through Egypt and across to the top of the African continent. The church grows massively, nonstop growth from uh, especially Acts chapter 2, but even we could mark it at Jesus' ascension. The church continues to grow slow at first. Acts 2, big explosion, and then big dispersion. The persecution causes it to just go everywhere. They get persecuted, big numbers move to surrounding communities. Plant Christianity in all of those communities. Churches start to grow. Persecution, and they move again. And again and again. That continues for 350 years nonstop. The church just continues to blossom very dramatically for 350 years. Imagine, you guys, if all that revival and church growth that we all desire was happening unchecked for the next 350 years. That'd be pretty amazing to see that kind of growth. And the thing that kills it Constantine, Roman emperor, uh, so many people are converting to Christianity and Rome is persecuting Christianity so strongly uh, that the growth of the church and the persecution of Rome causes it to be that no one is signing up and joining the Roman armies anymore. They can't drag a recruit into their ranks. And then Constantine has a dream, supposedly, where he sees the cross as this emblem and hears a voice telling him, go and conquer in this sign, or we might say today, in this symbol. And he awakes and tells the whole known world at that time that Christianity is now the state religion of Rome. And they they send messengers all through the empire because they worship the pantheon of Greek gods, and they have state-paid priests who run these temples, uh, temples of prostitution, temples of power, temples of money. Uh, they have these, all these temples. They tell them, you're, you're no longer pagan priests of the pantheon of you know, Greek gods. You are now Christian priests. And they, and they immediately begin Christian services, but there's lots of trouble because they have all these idols. They're not supposed to worship idols. So the next wave comes out of, okay, uh, change the names of your idols. Uh, give them all Christian, a sign, and they give them lots of suggestions, right? You know, Semiramis, the mother of Nimrod, uh, that's now Mary. And her child, that's now uh, Jesus, uh, you know, the child. So, so just rename all of these things. So they go through... And they just convert their holidays. They convert their statues. They can, you know. So while well, we got way too many of these gods, what are we well uh, saints make them saints, you know. And so now uh, you have all of these icons that they're worshiping in these pictures and stuff. Kills Christianity a single year. Christianity literally stops growing that year. Dead immediately. It's the arsenic to the whole program. And it begins a decline from that point. Lots of things still go on, right? Because now all those Christians are part of the Roman army and they start to, you know, the conquest and they start doing all of these things. But, but immediately it declines. 
and it, ultimately it's the death. And I say personally that that death continues in corrosion and uh, deterioration all the way up to Martin Luther until Martin Luther for the first time, right? Rather than just listening to these pagan priests who were converted to Christianity and all of their subsequent followers, uh, he starts reading the word of God. And he's actually in the process. Uh, conquests have occurred. Jerusalem's been captured. And he's crawling up these steps on his knees uh, to show his devotion to God and win uh, his salvation through this great suffering, hundreds of steps. And in the midst of it, uh, he hears in his heart and mind, uh, you know, what Paul is saying in Romans and Galatians and otherwise, you know, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, uh, lest any man should boast. Cause he's, he's building up to that point. Like I'm going to conquer these steps and then I'm going to be able to tell everybody of my you know, amazing spiritual experience and how I, I went all the way to the top on my knees, prayerfully on my knees, you know, journeying up. And he realizes this isn't going to save me. <laughs> you know, it is going to be the grace of God that saves me. So the persecution of the church that happens right here is actually the best thing historically that happens to the church. Now, extend it a little further, you guys, and think about how much the church is engaged in running away from difficulty. Just you got to make everything soft and you know comfortable and easy. We don't want our faith, don't want our church experience to be anything but self-indulgent. Is is the way that it's being presented to the church today? You know, <clears throat> I I have worked on many levels in churches and developing them. I've seen the whole program, and it's good that we have opportunity. But there's, uh, we we often talk about the entitlement of oh the world around the kids today, you know the entitlement. And uh, I look around the church, and I see that a lot. Not this ch other churches, other places, right? But I, I see it a lot. You know, people just you know if if everything isn't just right for them, then they're they're going somewhere else. They're there to have their flesh appealed to. They're not there to suffer. Guess what? Christianity is suffering. And the more you suffer, the stronger that you're going to be, and the more fruitful and the more useful, right? Not as Luther, like here, I'm going to climb up these stairs on my knees, but the, the idea of the things we go through, that test our faith, right? You guys know that I'm going to quote James chapter 1. Peter also talking about the, the fiery persecutions uh, that we experience. But James, particularly chapter, chapter 1, saying, Consider it pure joy whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds. <clears throat> the trials that we experience, right? Family, kids, money, sickness, you fill in the blank. They're tremendously difficult. James says, consider it pure joy. It's not going to be pure joy, right? It may be hell on earth. Your enemy, literally, the enemy of your soul may get involved and make it hard. James says, consider it pure joy. Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, stick-to-itiveness. 
That's perseverance. Endurance, right? The testing of your faith develops endurance. Endurance. And, and he says, you know, that that perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, I think every one of us can identify our weaknesses. If we're honest with ourselves, honest with the Lord, we can identify I'm, you know, weak in these areas or all of these areas. I'm just, you know, overarching spiritually weak. Maybe we can just summarize ourselves. It's the difficulties that make us strong. It's the challenges that make us strong. We have to embrace those. Consider it pure joy. Not going to be pure joy. You have to consider it pure joy. Inside that term, consider it is the idea of calculation. Like you got to do the math and realize strength is what it produces in you. This persecution makes the church strong in this occasion. So at that time, the great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria like seed, except the apostles. They stay. They're strong. They're determined. They're unintimidated. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Um, you know, this is some of the first martyrdom that the church is experiencing. And uh, they are, you know, very, very disheartened by that. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. It's, it's pandemonium. It's chaos. It's destruction. It's just like maybe you imagine the word havoc to mean. It's just jam the blender in the whole program and turn it on high. It just, you know, Saul is looking to just obliterate. So he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, putting them in prison is the idea. We got a few more minutes. I'm going to go a little further. Verse four, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. There's the diaspora, there's the expansion. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, hopefully you know the backstory, but I'll give you a little bit of a look here. So as the nation of Israel was being conquered, and particularly the Assyrians and then the Babylonians did this, where they, they learned a program of uh, mixing up the people uh, from the nations they would conquer. So the, the, if they conquered one country, they would try to take all of the people out of that country. And they would break them up into groups and distribute them amongst all the other nations that they conquered. And they would do that with each and every one. So when you're done, nobody from Israel is inside Israel. And there's a whole bunch of foreigners that are large groups of several different nations that have been transplanted into Israel. And then uh, Assyria and then later Babylon, this is their program, they do this thing where they then put them to charge of now you got to plant and grow crops and they provide them and they just create these massive slave nations that serve them. Well, when this happens in Israel, um, there's... Um, a whole bunch of people that uh, the uh, Assyrians and then later the Babylonians, they didn't want. They, they want the strong. 
So if you were crippled or you were sick or, you know, you had some malady, uh, they would just, they let you stay in the land. They don't care. They want the strong ones. Those are the ones they're going to transport and use as labor. So you got this very small remnant of sick and lame and debilitated that are inside Israel. And now Assyria, uh, Babylon in this case, brings in a massive load of mixed nations. And a strange occurrence begins where they're experiencing all kinds of hardship particularly make note of the fact that there's a remarkably high number of animal attacks that are occurring, like inexplicably. You know, the, the lions and the bears and the snakes and just all the bad things are coming out and like attacking, broad daylight, killing people is really flipping out the people that have been transplanted into the land. So they come to this summation that what's going on is the God of this land uh, hates us and we're not worshiping him properly so that's why we're suffering which you know kind of an accurate assessment right because god said the land was his not the nation of israel's that he would let israel live there but it was his land so now there's this mixed multitude in the land so they the jews that are there remaining and these people that have been transplanted send messages to the king and say could you please send back priests of this land that could teach us how to worship the God of this land so that we can appease him and not experience all of this tragedy? So they do. This is all recorded in the scripture. They send back the priests and they begin to teach them, but they're this mixed multitude and the lame and the halt. So they end up creating this sort of mixed up religion. They aren't following the things because the people don't want to actually follow it. And they become the Samaritans. These are the people. So when you read about Samaritans, you're, you're looking at this big mixed up race of people that was essentially created by Babylon. And in the process, they're, they're not worshiping in Jerusalem. And then, right, 70 years later, you have Ezra first, then Nehemiah come back they're going to rebuild the temple and they're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the Samaritans show up like well praise God this is wonderful and they ask can we help you rebuild and the Israelis say absolutely not you're not of us which at the time isn't entirely bad because they're keeping a purity within the nation and God's promise and and particularly the fact that the Messiah is going to come through them. I, I want to point out, right? So while that has a certain accuracy in its behavior, uh, the very first person that Jesus tells himself, he tells them, I am the Messiah. Very first person, anybody? Samaritan woman, woman at the well, right? So they are, we would say, Gentiles, right? They're not pure Jewish. They're Gentiles, and they've got a strange form, an altered, warped form of worship of God, but they're honoring God. And in that conversation, Jesus specifically says, I must go through Samaria. Must. go. I've got an appointment. I must go through Samaria to speak to this woman and tell her on the side. And look, when he comes back later, right, there's droves of them that are following him and worshiping him 
and honoring him as the Messiah. They, they are some of the first and some of the strongest converts to the faith. Uh, within that, uh, you know, the, the uh, whole summary here, that we, right? Those of you that know, we haven't gotten to Acts chapter 10 yet. Peter is called by the Lord to go to the Gentiles, right? And, and as he's preaching there, the Holy Spirit falls and they realize these guys are, Philip's, you know, uh, going to the Gentiles right now. <coughs> so this, this whole idea of how the people that just killed Stephen don't actually know God the way that they should. And here Philip is demonstrating that he has a better understanding of God's desires than perhaps, I hate to say it this way, <clears throat> try not to hold it against me, maybe Philip actually has a better understanding of God's desires than even the apostles do at this point. Because we don't see them going to the Samaritans. We don't see them going. They allow it. They endorse it. But it's almost like Stephen's ahead, or Philip, I did it. Philip is ahead of the curve. He's going to them. So uh, just read a little bit more here. The scattered area preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Why? Because Jesus already did the precursory legwork. The, these people are, they're already warm to the message. They want to receive uh, hearing and seeing. So the multitudes of one accord, he did the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. I, I want you to take notice, right? Because we're going to see that the apostles come lay hands and they receive the Holy Spirit. And there's some confusion because Philip's here and clearly he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so why are these people not experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet? So we'll, we'll examine that in our next study. But um, really, really interesting uh, occurrences happening uh, throughout all of this. Very, very deep uh, theological doctrine being established uh, by these men who were, you know, I, I don't mean to put it that way, but they were merely deacons. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They they uh, they uh, caused great effective changes in the body of Christ um, per their being filled with the Holy Spirit the way they were and obediently doing the work that the Lord had called them to. So we'll have to pick up at verse 9 uh, next week, uh, God willing, when we're together. So why don't we stand and we'll pray and then if we can stay in fellowship for a while. Seriously, check out the playground. Just take a look at it. I think it's worth your time. And yes, no cast. So that's progress. Father, I thank you very much again for your grace and your Holy Spirit. I pray that, um, Lord, our hearts and minds would be fixed on you fixed on your word, fixed on your Holy Spirit, fixed on your will, 
that we would be desirous of learning and growing and being strengthened and being useful to your kingdom and expanding your kingdom. Give us great doors of effectual ministry, Lord. Open opportunities to us. Help us to follow your leading and uh, see your will accomplished in us and through us and by us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.